you don't know me, my name's Peter Milliken. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration Church. And um, yeah, it's just good to be with you this morning. We're, um, we're, we're on the fourth week of a series in John. Well, we're working all the way, our way through all of John, but I've been working through John 8. Um, we're going to wrap up John 8 this morning. But uh, I want to start by talking a little bit about problems, uh, because we've all got problems, right? We all have problems this week. Um, one of the problems that I had um, was that I've been borrowing my, my brother's car who has been living in Tasmania and then he decided to move back up to Toowoomba and so um, I had to give him his car back. Very selfish of him to want his car back and uh, that just meant we went down to one car uh, as my wife and I, which is okay except that sometimes we need to be in different places at different times and so I decided to solve this problem, I bought an electric scooter. The problem with that is, it's freezing. And so, I don't want to ride this electric scooter, and uh, that's just one of the problems going on in our life at the moment, of one car between two people and trying to figure that out. Another problem we had was that our uh, washing machine decided that it was going to start leaking water randomly. And so when we do a load of washing, there's a pile of water left over at the, on the ground after, and I don't know why it's doing that or how it's, it's doing that. And so <clears throat> that's another problem. And so to solve that problem, I said to Karen, you know, the next time you do a load of washing, um, w- just sit there and watch the washing machine <laughs> and see where the water's coming out. And so, you know, I asked her to do that, and, um, and she put a load of washing on, and she went upstairs. And... <laughs> Um, and I came out, and here's the washing machine, and there's water everywhere. And I was like, I, why weren't you watching the washing machine? And uh, anyway, we just had different definitions of what it meant to watch the washing machine. And so we still haven't figured out why the washing machine is leaking water. Um, that's another problem that we have going on in uh, our life. Um, I've t- told you last week I've got a sore neck. Um, I also got a cork in my thigh from playing soccer and, um, you know, so my body is sore and uh, every time I roll over at night, for some reason, every time I change position, I get like a dead leg in my right thigh. So if there's any doctors out there that have any idea what's going on there, please let me know after. Um, So there's another problem going on in uh, my life. Now, these are fairly, um, fairly easy problems, if there's such a thing, but everyone here, everybody who walked in this morning, everyone who's sitting here has problems going on in their life. They're just everywhere, right? Problems, they surface. Some are big, some are small. Some of you are walking through some really painful problems right now. Some of you have some more surface-level problems, like a leaking washing machine or having to ride a scooter in freezing cold weather, um, like me. And then some are really hard uh, problems that are going on in your life. Some of them, they might be financial, um, where... Money just isn't there, and there's bills coming in, and you're stressed, and you're worried, and you're anxious. Uh, Might be relational um, in your marriage. Uh, There's just there's there's problems there in your relationship to your spouse that you can't seem to ever figure out or get under control or um, you know relate to each other in a healthy way. Uh, Might be with your kids who are walking through something that you just don't know how to minister to them or to be a good father or to be a good mom to your parents as they walk through a really challenging season and they're distant from you and um, that maybe that's your problem maybe it is physical problems more than a 
cork in the leg or a tweaked neck. It's um, an ongoing health disorder um, that is just doesn't seem to have a finish line. It just keeps going and there's not really anything you can seem to do that fixes it. We all got problems. Um, some are bigger than others. Some look very different. And if I kind of walked through and asked everybody uh, what maybe their problem was or one of the problems going on in their life, we would have probably as many different problems going on as there are people in the room. <clears throat> the Bible... Um, doesn't really address those kind of problems. Uh, it does some in, on, in some, of some of those problems, but the Bible seems to be more concerned about a universal problem that affects everyone. Um, and there's some really big problems for all of humanity that every single one of us, everyone who is ever born and lives... Um, has. And the Bible, first and foremost, um, wants to and does address these problems. And this morning, as we read through John chapter 8, as we finish this conversation that Jesus has with the Jews, we're going to see that Jesus has taken care of the biggest problems in the world. The biggest problems. The biggest ones that you will ever face or have to face, Jesus has already taken care of it. And I, I don't say that to um, minimize any of the things that you might be walking through, but one of the questions we ask as we read through the text, or that we should ask as we read through the text, is what comfort do I get from this? What comfort does Jesus bring to me from this teaching? And as we read through, we're going to see that Jesus brings the most important, most comforting, problem-solving news and information and reality to us that we could ever need. And when we understand this rightly and see this for what it is, it is so great and so wonderful that the problems that we go through on a more regular basis that are maybe a little bit more individualized, um, they don't go away, but they are framed rightly in light of what Jesus says and does and who he is. So we're going to jump into the text. Last week we talked about, we finished off in uh, verse 42, and Jesus made this statement that he said, if you knew my father, you would love me. Remember that? We talked about that that Jesus is the representation of the Father. He comes from the Father. The, the words that he speaks are the Father's words. The, the actions that, he's, that he does is, is what the Father would do. Um, and we started this conversation with Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, and he's coming into darkness to rescue those who are in darkness. And, and then the Jews have this back and forth, and we finished off with Jesus saying, if you really knew my father, you would love me. And he's basically been saying, hey, your father and my father are two different people and we are not on the same page. And as we argue and as we go back and forth, you're going to see that we are in very different camps when it comes to who we are and what we are here to do. So that was the, uh, the way we kind of left things last week. We pick up things 
in uh, verse 44. And finally, Jesus, after talking to these Jews about who their father is, um, and they say their father's Abraham, and Jesus says, yes, you have a physical descendant from Abraham, but you really actually have a, a different father. Finally, he's actually going to identify who this father is that he is claiming or he is saying the Jews are of. And so in verse 44, we pick up the conversation in John chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to there. And this is what he says. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, if you're a Jew... I mean, if you're just anyone, this is like the most offensive thing Jesus could ever say to you, right? To a Jew, to say that you are of the devil, your father, the devil. And it just took the heat of the conversation that was going back. It just took it up to like, you know, from, from 20 degrees to 40 degrees. And you're going to see that it just elevates this conversation and the anger and he goes on to say, you know, you, you are of the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning. He doesn't stand in the truth. And we see that Jesus identifies the devil is the complete opposite to him. Where Jesus is claiming that I tell the truth and I come to give life. The devil comes and he lies and he takes life. He's a murderer. All right? And um, he says he, he was like that from the beginning. He's been like that from the beginning. And, and if you understand that word beginning, you realize that Jesus is throwing back to the, the beginning of the story of the Bible in Genesis, in the garden. And we know that as we read that story, uh, Adam and Eve are in the garden and uh, it's, it's sinless and there's perfect peace and harmony in the garden. And then the devil shows up and he tells his first lie to Eve. Right? What's the, what's the lie that he says? He says, uh, surely you will not die if you eat of the fruit, right? which is completely opposite to what God had said, that they would die if they ate of the fruit. And uh, yes, physical death was not instant, but it was introduced at the fall as Eve took the fruit and Adam took the fruit and they ate. And there was a Spiritual death that took place immediately as God and man was separated from each other, no longer in living harmony and relationship. And so we see that the devil from the beginning as a serpent lies. And he is a murderer that introduces broken relationship. And corruption comes across the earth. <clears throat> Sin enters the world. And into darkness, Adam and Eve go. All because <clears throat> Adam and Eve believed the lie that God wasn't telling the truth. And here again, we have Jesus telling the truth to supposedly God's nation, God's people, and they do not believe him. They're even about to lie about him and say that he has a demon in him. And then they're going to try and kill him. They want to murder him. And we'll see that by the end of the passage today. They're going to try and kill Jesus. And then Jesus says, you are just like the serpent in the garden, telling lies, seeking to kill. 
See, when, when we're young, this, this is the case for most of us, especially for young boys, when we're, when, we are, when we're little, we see our dads as our heroes. And if, if you know, look at little kids, if, if their dad's a tradie, they want to be a tradie. If their dad plays football, they want to play football. And uh, kids want to replicate their parents in all sorts of ways, especially when they're young and they don't realise, you know, they, their parents aren't actually that cool and they've got lots of problems and issues and they normally try to want to get away from them when they get a bit older. But when you're kids, you want to replicate your parents, especially young boys. They want to be like their dads. And Jesus says to the Jews... You are of your father, the devil. He's saying you are replicating exactly what the serpent does. You are exactly the character of the devil. I replicate my father. I am from him. I speak what he says. I do what he wants. I'm on his schedule. I seek to please him. Your disbelief, your lies, your seeking to kill, that's exactly what your father does. For he is a liar. He's the father of lies. He's the origin of it. He began it. He's the best at it. He does it constantly. And he wants you to believe it so that you might distance yourself from God and disbelief the truth that God loves you. And he will do everything he can to stop you from believing that. And he'll tell you all sorts of lies. That he'll just dangle out there in front of you. One of the ways that this shows up in, in my life is in about 45 minutes, an hour, uh, I'll finish this sermon and I'll talk and I'll mingle for a little bit. So I'll finish the sermon earlier than that. <laughs> I'll finish the sermon, then I'll talk and in about 45 minutes, an hour, um, yeah, strap in, it's going to be a long one. <clears throat> And uh, I'll walk out of this building and I'll go to my car and I'll get in the car and I will have uh, this thought that will say uh, to me uh, as I think about this sermon and it will say, that was a failure. And that wasn't good enough. And uh, you should have done better than that. And... um, that just happens on a regular basis for me. And I've talked to other preachers, um, and it seems to happen quite a lot as you preach and you bring a message and you put your heart and soul into it, um, and sometimes you will just finish that and there'll just be this lie that'll pop into your head just telling you that was, that was terrible, that was a foul. Um, that's not from God. And I have to remember that all the time. How do I know that's not from God? Because God doesn't love me based on my preaching. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, God loves us not because we are lovable, but because He is love. Not because He needs to receive, but because He delights to give. What about you? What are the lies that you hear, that you believe? 
What do they sound like? Maybe they sound like you're not good enough. You'll never amount to anything. You're a failure. You're a terrible parent. You're a bad spouse. You're always going to be sad. You can't share that with anyone. You're alone. No one likes you. They aren't from God. Those are, li- those are lies that originate from someone else. And Jesus identifies them as the devil, the evil one, the serpent, the adversary. They are not truth. Jesus tells the truth. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. This is pretty harsh criticism of the Jews. but fair and truthful. Verse 48, The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? So the Jews respond with accusations of their own. You call us a child of the devil. Well, you are a Samaritan and you have a demon. Now, it's not unexpected that they would say that he has a demon. In fact, they said that in chapter 7, a, a chapter earlier, and they'll say it again as the book goes on. That's one of the accusations. What's a little weird or unexpected is that along with that is this, this accusation or charge of being a Samaritan. What does that mean? And it's probably because of the Jew and the Samaritan tension that existed, the disassociation from one another. We see this as Jesus goes and uh, speaks to the woman at the well who's a Samaritan, and there, there is this obvious divide between them that they didn't associate with each other, they didn't talk to each other, they didn't go near each other. Um, the Samaritans came about when uh, Assyria um, pretty much just dropped all the people that they had conquered over the years um, back into Israel. Israel had already been taken into captivity, and so they had their spare land, and so Assyria put all their kind of captives that they'd gotten from all different countries that they had taken over all the time, and they dropped them into Israel um, up there. And um, it didn't go very well for them. And in fact, um, it talks about in Kings that um, God actually judged them and there was these wild animals that would come and eat them. And so they said, well, maybe we should put some Israelites back in the land since it is their land to live amongst these other Gentile nations. And so they put some of the Israelites in there and they put some priests in there so that they would follow the law and so that might go a little bit better for them. And so the Samaritans come out of this kind of melting pot of all these different nations, including some of Israel, but a lot of Gentile nations. And they follow the law to some degree, but there's a lot of idolatry. There's even child sacrifice. And so this idea of a Samaritan was to be unclean. It was to come from this, this melting pot of Gentiles and idolatry. And, and uh, if you were charged as a Samaritan, man, you did not fear God. You were not one of the chosen, chosen race of 
true Israel. And so they're basically saying, hey, you are not one of us. You, you do not associate with us. We are different from you. You do not fear God. In fact, you actually are demon-possessed. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honour my Father, and you dishonour me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus' argument here, I honour God, you dishonour me, therefore you dishonour God. He says, I'm the exact representation of, the, of God, and everything I say and do accurately pleases the Father, and therefore I honour Him. You see, God is the only entity that rightly seeks His own glory. Proverbs 25, 27 says this, It is not good to eat too much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Why is it that we shouldn't seek our own glory? What's wrong with that? It is putting yourself at the center of something that you're not actually at the center of. Another way of explaining is that you cannot do anything without the grace of God. You don't live, eat, breathe, act without what God has given you the ability to do so. And therefore, to seek the glory for doing something that ultimately you aren't responsible for is wrong. But when God seeks His glory, it is the only time that glory is accurately ascribed to its source and origin. For God to seek His own honour, it is right, it is true, it is good. When God is believed in, when He's honoured and loved, it is the safest place for a human to be. And it's God who sees all and He knows all and He's truthful and He's right and He's good. It is because of this that He is rightly the judge. And he will judge everything one day that is contrary to himself and his goodness. The argument from Jesus, you dishonor me, I honor God. You dishonor God by dishonoring me. God is to be glorified and he is the one who judges. And therefore, what you do to me, God will judge you for that. And when the judgment comes, Jesus says there actually is a way to escape the judgment of a holy God. The way you truly honor my Father is to believe in me. And he says, whoever keeps my word will never see death. We talked about this earlier. The, the Greek there, the never, is two negatives. It's the strongest way to negate something in Greek. We saw that back in verse 12. It sounds very similar where he says... Uh, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Here he says, whoever keeps my word will never see death. If you believe in me, if you follow me, if you, if you keep my word. You see, to keep is to 
observe, to hold on to. It has the idea of this, this dedication to the message, the person of Jesus. It's not merely just an intellectual assent or agreement in, in some sort of philosophical terms. It's a little bit like the Sabbath, when, G, when, when God told the, the Jews to keep the Sabbath. He wasn't just saying, hey, I want you to have a day off. There was this idea that came with this, that uh, even though you work the land and your meals come from the ground and everything that you need in this life is, is going to be out of the land, I want you to take a day off. It's a way that you show that you trust in me for the provision for everything that you need in this life. And you keep the Sabbath as a way of showing that you are my people. that I'm your God and I will lead you. I will protect you. I will provide for you. You keep the Sabbath. You keep Jesus' words. You live by them. You sit under them. And he says, you'll never... Taste death. And just like a lot of the things that Jesus talks about, this isn't a physical death. This is a spiritual death. Because God is concerned with your relationship to Him. For the, that very thing that was broken way back in the garden, that death that came in was a spiritual death. It was separation from God. And Jesus says... I'm going to come, and if you're in me, you will never be separated from the Father again. And although you may experience a physical death, which we all will, you will always be connected to the, to the Father. You will always be in relationship with Him. You will never walk in the darkness And the Jews, just like they have all the way through, miss it. They think he's talking about physical death. And the Jews said to him in verse 52, Now we know you have a demon. They're convinced. Abraham died, as did the prophets. <clears throat> Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham and the prophets who died, who do you make yourself out to be? The Jews are convinced. They've got him now. How can you say that someone who keeps your word will never die? Not even Abraham could avoid death. That would make you greater than Abraham. All the prophets, the very messengers of God, they died too. Are you greater than them? And they're implying a negative response here with their question. And the irony is that's exactly what Jesus is saying. That's exactly what he's claiming. Jesus is claiming to be greater than Abraham and the prophets. They say, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Now he's going to answer this question two different ways. It's the same answer two different ways. So the first answer is 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. 
It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I, did, that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Do you see that? Jesus says that God, who rightfully and truthfully is the only one that deserves and rightly receives glory, he says, God glorifies me. Implication, I am equal with God and rightly to be glorified. So there's the first answer. He says, I am equal with God, for I am to be glorified, just as God is the only one to be glorified. He glorifies in me. Second answer, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now what is Jesus referring to here? To understand this, we've got to go back. So much of the New Testament, you just, you just got to keep going back. I know sometimes it's frustrating. You think, why do we keep going back? Why do we... You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. Everything that's in the New Testament comes out of the Old Testament. Okay, so I used to have a professor, and he'd always say, if you don't understand something, go left, go left. And he just used to you know, flip the book back, flip the book back. So we've got to go back to understand what he is. Because, I mean, he's referencing Abraham for starters. Abraham, right out of Genesis. And um, he, he really shows up in Genesis 12. Um, Genesis 12 comes after Genesis 11. I figured that out all by myself. Uh, What happens in Genesis 11? Well, there's a Tower of Babel, right? Where the people come together and they say, we're going to build this tower and we're going to do it in our own strength and we're going to reach God ourselves. And God decides that's not actually the way you're meant to operate. And so he scatters people. And then he grabs one guy called Abram at the time, but becomes Abraham. And he makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. And it's known as the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, God promises to give Abraham three things, right? Three things. First thing is land. And we see that in the, in the physical land that Israel is given, and it is outlined in Scripture, the boundaries of that land. He says, I will give you this land. The second thing that he says is, I'm going to make you a great nation. And there's a promise to Abraham that out of him will come many, many, many people, thousands, myriads, as many as the sand is on the seashore, and you will become a great nation. That will be the nation of Israel. <clears throat> And then he says, I'm going to give you a blessing and you will be a blessing. And in 12.3, he says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth, that's the Gentile nations, that's you, that's me, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Through you, Abraham, the earth, the, ne- the world will be blessed. <clears throat> How is that going to happen? Flip over 10 chapters, right? Let's go to Genesis 22. And Abraham is, uh, he's just sacri- well, gone to sacrifice Isaac. We're going to look at that in a sec. And uh, the promise gets a little more specific there. In Genesis 22:18, God says, In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The seed there 
is singular. Right? And so the promise gets a little bit more defined, basically saying there is one who will come from you, from your descendants, and he's going to be the one that fulfills the blessing to the nations. Right? And this is the same seed that showed up in God's promise to Adam and Eve in the garden. Right? Genesis 3.15, he says, there's going to be one who will come who will bruise the head of the serpent. We get a little bit more information to Abraham saying, there is a seed who will come from you. He will bless the world. And so we see that there is this promise that there would be one from Abraham and he would be what comes to be known as the Messiah. He's the Christ. The one who will bless the world. And just before this, we have this story of Abraham, and this is the second part that plays into it. We have Abraham, he's going up the mountain. This mountain is called Mount Moriah. right? It's the area of Moriah. And Abraham has been told by God to sacrifice his only son, Isaac. And this is a sermon in itself, but Sure enough, Abraham uh, obeys and he he is going up the mountain and he takes his son with him and they carry wood and uh, they're going up the mountain and Isaac is unaware and Isaac says to Abraham, his dad, Dad, where's the the lamb that we're going to sacrifice for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide it. And they go up the mountain up Mount Moriah and Abraham ties his own son up on the altar and he draws a knife ready to sacrifice his own child and the angel of the Lord jumps in and says and he commands them to stop in verse 12 he said do not stretch out your hand against the lad do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. And it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. There is a prophecy way back that Abraham saw as he uh, went to sacrifice his son and a substitute was given in that place. He said, it has been provided and it will be provided. Provided The one who is to come will be the one that God provides as a substitute for our sacrifice. It will be provided. Do you think Abraham was glad to see that ram? Do you think he rejoiced as he, as he went down Mount Moriah with his son by his side? I think so. He was glad to see that substitute. And he looked forward to the substitute that would come, 
that the Lord would provide. The seed through Eve and through Abraham, down through David, all the way to Christ. This is why so often now... Our Gospels start with this genealogy and you read these names and you're like, why is that in there? It's because we're following the promise. That when God says he will do something, he will do it. And when Solomon goes to build the temple, that you know, hundreds of years later, the son of David, Solomon builds the temple for the Israelites. In 2 Chronicles 3.1, he goes to build it. And you know where he builds it? Mount Moriah. And it's this place, this temple, where Jesus is standing in John 8, saying, Abraham rejoiced at my day. This is the exact same place where the substitutionary sacrifice was given for Abraham and Isaac, and a prophecy was made that this will take place again. And Abraham rejoiced at the thought of it, and he foresaw the sacrificial lamb of God in Jesus Christ that day. Once again, the Jews don't get it. Verse 57, the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Straight over their heads. They're thinking purely physical. How could you see Abraham? He's two millennia old. You're not even 50. How could you see him? How could, how could he know you? There's no way that's possible. And Jesus says, I'm not just a contemporary of Abraham. I'm more than that. 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am and he invoked the divine name of God. You might remember this, when, when God sends Moses into Egypt in Exodus 3, and he's going, he says, I want you to go and lead my nation out of captivity, out of slavery. And Moses has all these excuses and reasons why he shouldn't do it. And he says, like, when I get there, who should I tell them has sent me here? And, and God's response is, I am who I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. What does that mean, I am? Well, it's in the present tense. It, it summarizes God's relationship to Israel in the Old Testament. When, when God makes promises to Israel and they ask, who's going to do, do this? It's God putting up his hand saying, I am. I am. Who's going to rescue us from slavery? I am. Who's going to provide for us in the wilderness? I am. Who's going to give us victory in battle? I am. Who's going to give us land and a great nation and this blessing? I am. Who's going to rescue us from our sins that has gotten us back into slavery again? I am. Who's going to forgive us our sins? I am. It means what God says he will do. His name itself promises that. And Jesus steps forth on Mount Moriah and says, Before Abraham was, 
I am. It is in the person of Jesus that the function of the name of Yahweh finds its ultimate fulfillment. Jesus answers the question, who are you? The same, way, two different, the same answer two different ways. He's the one that the Father glorifies. And he's the one that Abraham looked toward. The one that was before Abraham, the great I am. And there's no surprise here. The Jews, they've heard enough. They deem it blasphemy. Someone claiming to be God himself Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. <clears throat> so where does this leave us? Jesus is the great I am. It is a present tense, ongoing, continuous, never-ending name. It doesn't have a beginning, it doesn't have an end, and Jesus is the exact character of God in a man. So when we ask, who's going to save us from the darkness and bring us into light? Jesus puts up his hand. I am. Who's going to get us to the Father so that we might have life? I am. Who's going to take us through the grave into eternity? I am. Who's going to resurrect our bodies without pain or sickness or death? I am. Who's going to save us from the judgment we deserve? I am. Who's going to take our place on the cross? I am. Who's going to tell us the truth about our, our identity? I am. Who's going to change us on the inside? I am. Who's going to sustain you and keep you and present you blameless before the Father? I am. Who's going to be with you as you walk through that valley of depression? Jesus says, I am. Who's going to provide for you when the finances aren't there? When you let, get, get let go from your job? Jesus says, I am. Who's going to walk with you through that sickness and as your body fails, Jesus says, I am. Who is to be praised forevermore? I am. You see, Jesus has already fixed your biggest problems. And he is more committed to us than we are to him. Just as we finish, what is, let me ask this question, what, what is the problem in your life right now that you would like to invite Jesus into that you need his help with? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes just to think that through. 
the great I am. The one who was prophesied about way back in the garden, who would bruise the head of the serpent, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, God himself in a man. He wants to walk with you. What's the problem that you want to invite Jesus in to help you with? The great I am. Would you bow your heads? Father, I, um, I'm just so grateful. Grateful for Jesus. Where would we be without him? We would be in darkness, believing lies. Stuck in a place so distant from you, away from life. And yet you never gave up on us. You fulfilled your promise. That when Adam and Eve left the garden and you wondered, would they ever get back? You came to us. In the form of Jesus, a man, you took on flesh and you walked amongst us in a, in a way that we can never fully comprehend. And God, your word is truth. And so we thank you for the truth this morning that Jesus is with us, that Jesus has conquered death, that Jesus is continuous, he is present. And all our problems, they just look so much smaller in light of what God has done, what you have done through Jesus. So this morning I pray for us, Lord, that as we go from this place, that we would rightly worship you in this next song, but as we go through our week, that we would continue to worship you, that you would help us to see the lies that the enemy wants to throw at us, to know that they're not true, then to walk in the truth that you love us so much so that your very son died for us, our substitute. May this truth sink into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things by the power of your spirit. Amen.